The show you are about to hear is part two of episode 20. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please go back and do that now. Otherwise, let's get on with Victoria's education. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Outside the closed world of Kensington Palace, the life of King George IV carried on much as it had when he was Prince Regent. He continued his battles with his estranged wife. He was absolutely not a believer in discretion either. When Napoleon Bonaparte finally died, King George IV was told, Sire, your bitterest enemy is dead. Is she, by God? replied the king, leaving no doubts about who he really hated. Sure, Napoleon had been Britain's enemies for decades, and Britain had chained him to a rock in the South Atlantic. But for King George IV, his wife was the true enemy. Finally, She died in some pain after a short trip to the theatre. The king was on a ship on his way to Ireland when he got the news. He was thrilled. By the time he got to Ireland, he had been on an epic bender to celebrate and was described as blind drunk. This technically left him free to remarry and have children. If he did, his brothers and Victoria would all drop down the line of succession. Curiously, though, when his wife died, George the Fourth sank into depression. Perhaps it was hatred of her that had kept him going. Now the war was over, and he had nothing left. He had gout, was grossly overweight, and barely able to walk. He took a 51-year-old woman as a mistress, and retreated in despair to Windsor Castle. Soon, everyone knew he would not have any more children, and he would not have a long and active life. It is really easy to dislike this guy. It really is. In the past episodes, we've seen him be selfish, cruel, a substance abuser, a spendthrift, and a wastrel. But he was still a human being. Whatever his many faults, by the end of his life, he was in a terrible place mentally. As one observer noted, He looks ghastly. He is plunged into gloom. He talks about nothing but dying. I have never seen him so wretched. The mind can be the worst prison, because it is the one that we can't escape from. To be locked in a decaying body suffering depression and with no real hope for the future is a terrible fate. King George IV couldn't live forever. In 1830, his unhealthy lifestyle caught up with him and he died. He had been a vain, self-obsessed king. He had been a womanizer, a shameless self-promoter who desperately wanted to be regarded as being as grand and talented as his rival Napoleon Bonaparte. He had built countless buildings 
monuments and art collections, he had instituted some of the pageantry associated with the modern monarchy. He had had a bad childhood with a harsh father that hated him and who later went mad. There are signs that his father's approach to austere eating gave rise to an unhealthy relationship with food for George IV. He had a secret marriage, a string of mistresses, and serious drink and drug addictions. He was deeply despised, but it can't have been good for his depression to have people describe him as being, quote, a great sausage stuffed into the covering, end quote, or calling him the Prince of Wales with an H. Above all, he had wanted to be loved and admired as a gentleman of taste, wit and elegance. Yet his personal habits, his personal pettiness and overspending made it impossible. Towards the end, he suffered from serious breathing difficulties and could only sleep sitting up. He was nearly blind from cataracts and had to have fluid drained from his limbs. He kept his immense appetite, though, almost till the last. The Duke of Wellington noted that he had a breakfast of, quote, pigeon and beefsteak pie, three parts of a bottle of Moselle, a glass of dry champagne, two glasses of port, and a glass of brandy. Not that drinking alcohol, end quote. Not that drinking alcohol at breakfast was particularly unusual in the 1820s. Small beer was a sensible alternative to the risky water supply, but it had a low alcohol content. Drinking champagne, port and brandy, though, was definitely not typical for breakfast. King George IV's death was painful and lonely. He was with his incompetent doctor, Sir Henry Halford, and died in pain from abdominal bleeding. After his death, he was found to have a heart coated in fat and a tumour the size of an orange on his bladder. The cause of death was internal bleeding. He had been responsible for a huge amount of suffering in the United Kingdom, and the general view was that him dying was the best thing he'd ever done. The obituaries were pretty scathing, even the establishment newspaper, The Times, wrote, quote, There never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. What eye has wept for him? What heart has heaved one throb of unmercenary sorrow? If he ever had a friend, a devoted friend in any rank of life, we protest that the name of him or her never reached us, end quote. It nearly goes without saying there were parties in the street to celebrate his death. The official eulogy was full of praise, but his funeral was full of smiles, especially on the face of the man who replaced him. His brother, William, Duke of Clarence, now King William IV of England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. King William IV was 65 years old, red-faced, loud, mostly happy, rather aggressive and much given to swearing and acting like he was still on the quarterdeck of a naval vessel from his youth. 
the so-called Sailor King, had a huge number of children, but none of them were with his wife. Unless he had a legitimate child, Victoria was now direct heir to the throne. She didn't want it, and she had no proper training in statecraft or the monarch's role in the constitution. Worse still, Parliament would soon give the Duchess of Kent the regency she and John Conroy had plotted for. She was given the power of regency if the king died before Victoria was 18. So many people were putting a huge weight of expectations on Victoria. Conroy and her mother wanted to control her for power. The politicians wanted her support to climb the political ladder. The people of the country desperately hoped she would somehow rescue them and the nation from the hard times that never seemed to end. Many aristocrats hoped she would, like Lady Warncliffe, quote, save us from democracy, end quote. Even her name was under attack. In 1831, King William IV tried hard to get the Duchess of Kent to change her daughter's name, which most people seemed to think was ridiculous, made up and foreign. The Duchess initially agreed, but changed her mind. Isn't it funny? The name Victoria is so quintessentially British now that it's almost shocking to realise that the people of the 1830s felt it was a new and foreign name. Conroy and the Duchess of Kent focused on Victoria's education and her deportment. She was to be presented as the heir to the throne and well-educated. The best outcome for them would have been an educated but completely malleable Victoria who could act the part but would do what they wanted. The fallback, as her stubborn independence grew and grew, was to present her to the public as feeble and unfit to rule unaided. Victoria recalled her early education, saying, quote, I was brought up very simply and never had a room to myself till I was nearly grown up, always slept in my mother's room till I came to the throne at Claremont and in the small houses and the bathing places I sat and took my lessons in my governess's bedroom. I was not fond of learning as a little child and baffled every attempt to teach me my letters up to five years old when I consented to learn them by their being written down before me. End quote. By the age of nine, in 1828, Victoria was writing to relatives and was progressing well. She didn't make it easy on her tutors. She was notoriously headstrong and stubborn. She was a challenge to educate and parent. She was being made to practice piano, wasn't enjoying it. When told she had to play a certain note, she slammed the lid down and declared, there is no must about it. Remember that only a piano and being able to play in the 1820s and 1830s was incredibly rare. They were a luxury item for the super rich. That's because you needed a lot of space to put the damn things. And interchangeable standard machine parts had not been invented 
So each item was unique, handcrafted. Hence, Jane Austen mentions one as a huge status symbol gift from Frank Churchill to Jane Fairfax in the novel Emma. Since sheet music wasn't printed, it also had to be hand-copied, adding to the expense. The little girl Victoria was unknowingly rejecting a hugely privileged opportunity. Luckily, she eventually became a good pianist. Not that the Duchess of Kent was particularly interested in being a sweet and nurturing mother, but it did seem she was hurt by how challenging Victoria actually was. She was probably painfully aware that her daughter loved her governess Lazen, not her. The whole family dynamic was deeply unhealthy. Her uncle Leopold was another lifeline, and some of her earliest letters were to him. Victoria clearly loved him, and he felt the same. She loved his visits, seeing them as breaths of fresh air. She frequently referred to him as dear uncle Leopold. He was keen to advise her as she grew up, and his emotional support was important, even if he wasn't often physically present. Victoria wrote to him on the 25th of November, 1823, quote, My dearest uncle, I wish you many happy returns of your birthday. I very often think of you, and I hope to see you again soon, for I am very fond of you. I see my aunt Sophie often, who looks very well, and is very well. I use every day your pretty soup basin. Is it very warm in Italy? It is so mild here that I go out every day. Mama is tolerably well, and I'm quite well. Your affectionate niece. P.S. I am very angry with you, Uncle, for you have never written to me once since you went, and that is a long while. End quote. Very cute for a four-year-old. I suspect she had some help. As she grew older, they kept writing regular letters, and he gave her some extremely good advice about being a queen and a ruler. By 1830, the Duchess of Kent was keen to have Victoria examined to make sure her education was on track. She wrote to a selection of bishops saying, quote, The princess will be 11 years of age in May. By the death of her revered father, when she was but eight months old, her sole care and charge devolved to me. Stranger as I then was, I became deeply impressed with the absolute necessity of bringing her up entirely in this country, that every feeling should be that of her native land, and proving thereby my devotion to duty by rejecting all those feelings of home and kindred that divided my heart. When the princess approached her fifth year, I considered it the proper time to begin in a moderate way her education, an education that was to fit her to be either the sovereign of these realms or to fill a junior station in the royal family until the will of providence should show at a later period what her destiny was to be. A revision of the papers I send you herewith will best show your lordships the system pursued, progress made, etc. I attend almost always myself every lesson or a part, and as 
the lady about the princess is a competent person, she assists her in preparing her lessons for the various masters, as I resolved to act in that manner so as to be her governess myself. I naturally hope that I have pursued that course most beneficial to all the great interests at stake. At the present moment, no concern can be more momentous, or in which the consequences in the interests of the country can be more at stake than the education of its future sovereign. I feel the time to be now come that what has been done should be put to some test, that if anything has been done in an error of judgment, it may be corrected, and that the plan for the future should be open to consideration and revision. End quote. There is actually a lot more, which I won't read. There is just one other paragraph that is really interesting to us. Quote, I must conclude by observing that as yet, the princess is not aware of the station that she is likely to fulfil. She is aware of its duties, and that a sovereign should live for others, so that when her innocent mind receives the impressions of her future fate, she receives it with a mind formed to be sensible of what is to be expected from her, and it is to be hoped she will be too well grounded in her principles to be dazzled with the station she is to look to, end quote. That might sound pretty unremarkable, but think about it in the context of what we've covered about Sir John Conroy and the Duchess and what they really wanted over Victoria. Living for others, an innocent mind, sensible of what is expected and well-grounded. That sounds like a person who is being trained to put herself last, but also to do what she is told by wiser heads without breaking into the full Queen Elizabeth I, Good Queen Bess defiance, or more realistically, to do whatever the Duchess and Sir John Conroy told her. And that's not just me throwing Queen Elizabeth I in at random either. Victoria looked at Elizabeth I as an example of queenship to be evaluated. She felt Elizabeth I was a good ruler, but too harsh and immodest. Lazen had a slightly different view. She regarded Elizabeth I as the perfect model of a queen and said tellingly in a conversation that, quote, she could pardon wickedness in a queen, but not weakness, end quote. So, Victoria and Lazen had a mutual role model to aim for, one that suited Victoria's headstrong temperament, and also one that was an example of an extremely strong and independent queenship. Her upbringing with bowing servants and with formal modes of conduct around her made Victoria arrogant, and that was a difficult character trait, especially when combined with her notorious strong will. Still, she was determined to be good as she understood it, and had a strict sense of personal morality. Lazen reinforced this black and white worldview. She bought Victoria a book called Moral Tales for Young People by Miss Edgeworth. It aimed to help children solve moral problems themselves, but in a very black and white way. It has plenty of worthy phrases like, quote, Steady, untried attention alone is what produces excellence. 
end quote, it is unashamedly hammering home character lessons. It condemned education in practical or knowledge-based ways if the child's character wasn't shaped first. In more modern language, it viewed the purpose of education as being to produce a moral person, then instill knowledge afterwards. It looked at how people should relate to their social superiors and inferiors. This would have been really important to Victoria. We have mentioned class a few times now on the podcast, but never really covered it in depth. Like education, it needs a few shows on its own, because it's far more important and more complex than you might think. From the modern worldview, class is a bolt-on to society. We live in an age of individualism, where individual rights and freedoms are fundamentals. Not only that, but they are considered to be what society is supposed to aim for and protect. A lot of modern social, gender or racial studies are predicated on the idea that everyone is essentially a sovereign individual who deserves to flourish. Anything that gets in the way of that is to be studied and if possible removed. If you are an American in particular, you probably believe freedom to be the most important thing, to live in a free country and have rights that make you free, to be able to live your life how you choose. The Victorians would not really have thought in the same way. To most Victorians, a classless society would have been by and large considered an oxymoron. Society, especially the local community and groups were important. The individual was not. I should give you a heads up though, I'm really simplifying here. The very early Victorians wouldn't have used the term class. In a way, the class system, as we refer to it, developed in the Victorian period. In the 1820s and 1830s, the frameworks for understanding class weren't in place. Marx and Engels hadn't even written their seminal works. If you read historians like E.P. Thompson, you find that much of what we call class is a label that had to evolve during the Victorian period. Instead, as Victoria grew up, she would have been aware of terms like orders, labourers, servants, the poor, the masses, the lower sorts. Relationships within and between the social orders and classes were incredibly important, often extremely rigid. It wouldn't make sense to the Victorians to talk about, say, racial prejudice without referring to the class system. Class told a Victorian where they sat in the world, how they related to each other, who spoke to whom and when. A good example of this is actually found in the Victorian hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful, by Cecil Alexander, in verse 3. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly, and ordered their estate. It was a hymn written for children, 
but it would have been a recognisable sentiment to all Victorians. It is pretty clear. The rich man is in a castle, and the poor man is at the gate because God has put them there. If you are religious and talking about the actions of God, then there are no half chances. The message is that the creator of everything, the supreme power of the universe, had put everyone in the proper place in the class system. So be humble and accepting. Even if a Victorian rose in the class system, it would be accepted that there was an element of divine favour. It is important to remember social mobility was possible as it was a class system, not a caste system. What was key was to try to move up in ways that were acceptable. You couldn't talk about economics without talking about the classes, and those classes were deemed hierarchical, either because God himself had ordained it, or because it had been that way since time immemorial. Referring to people being one of the lower orders makes sense when you think of it in that mindset. God wanted them to be poor. He wanted them to suffer. He wanted their lives to be awful, and for man to have to work to survive, to earn his bread by the sweat of his brow, as Genesis chapter 3 verse 18 to 19 says, and the Victorians took these biblical injunctions seriously. To the upper ranks of society then, it had to follow that God had chosen to bless them, and so they were rich because God wanted them to be, and the poor weren't. As you can imagine, this kind of philosophy caused a lot of arguments. If God ordered the world, it followed whoever he placed at the head of the church and as monarch were at the top of his ordered world. In the United Kingdom, that person was the same person. It was the king or queen. You can see how quickly this leads to theories of divine rights or wars between Protestants and Catholics. The Industrial Revolution was highly disruptive, not just to jobs, but to the communities of class that were displaced by migration to the cities. As communities reshaped, classes were disturbed and had to find new ways to relate to their members and outsiders. Class gradation in Victorian England was immensely intricate, to say nothing of how classes related between England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales. Often things were highly situational and went far beyond a crude upper, middle and lower class distinction. Nor was class directly linked to money, although that was a good signpost. By moving and working in new industries, a distinct working class developed during Victoria's reign, one that was new and different from the old peasant labouring class. But it also saw the massive expansion of the educated middle classes. As I said, we don't have time to cover class in depth in this show, and the topics of class, nationality and race are only going to get more complicated throughout the Victorian era. I'm simplifying an extremely complex discussion here. As with everything, people held different beliefs and values 
or acted differently, but it gives you a flavour. For now, you just need to remember that class was essential to the Victorians, whatever it was called. It was complicated, and Victoria would have been immersed in it. As an explicit byproduct of class, with society's view of education for the classes and genders, universal education wasn't desirable or even necessary for a lot of societies throughout history. If the bulk of the population was made up of rural labourers and farmers, literacy didn't need to be too advanced. And maths could also be basic. Farmers needed to be able to read and write to keep accounts, manage sales and read almanacs. Sailors didn't need to read or write, unless they were expecting to move to command positions. They didn't need lessons in chemistry, engineering, history, or lots more besides. That was still true in Victoria's childhood. As I said, we don't have time to cover class in depth on this show, and the topics of class, gender, nationality and race are only going to get more complicated throughout the Victorian era. I'm simplifying an extremely complex discussion here. As with everything, people held different beliefs and values, but it gives you a flavour. For now, you just need to remember that class was essential to the Victorians, whatever it was called. It was complicated, and Victoria would have been immersed in it. She had to place herself mentally within the class system. Even as a child, how she understood the world would revolve around it. How people related to her was entirely class dependent. It must have been immensely difficult for her to understand at first and created immense tension. As a child, she was low in the class system. But as a noble, she was moved up. Then she had to consider she was a girl, and girls were usually below men of the equivalent class in many spheres, but not in all. In other spheres, men were inferior in the class system. As a girl with intelligence, education, and wealth, she had advantages over most of the population, moving her to the top drawer, but as a female noble, she was constrained by the codes of noble behaviour. For the really rich, the education would be given at home and given by a governess when the child was young, followed by private tutors, supplemented by parental instruction. And upper-class girls were expected to read well, usually in at least English, Latin and French. Not even the most sexist man in the early Victorian era would have argued for an illiterate duchess. It did mean that there was no standard curriculum for education or standardised testing, let alone a curriculum for an heir to the throne. The Duchess of Kent was clear. Victoria deferred to no one, not even the royal family. The only people Victoria was supposed to obey were her and Conroy. It caused fury for King William IV when the Duchess of Kent tried to get his wife, the Queen, to bow to Victoria. 
but by giving Victoria such a sharp sense of right and wrong, an education that actually instilled critical thinking, and by getting everyone to treat her as the next queen, they had created someone who knew she was going to be a monarch. She expected deference on an almost instinctive level. King William IV had never expected to be king, and still behaved like a naval officer on the quarterdeck. Bluff, hearty, and thinking rank was earned through work, with social niceties being a bit la-di-da. But the British monarch was at the top of the social and class system. It wasn't up for debate. God had appointed them as far as most Victorians were concerned, even if they ruled by constitution and custom through Parliament rather than by divine right. Having a woman as monarch made many British people uncomfortable, since it was assumed by some her natural character was feminine and therefore not suited for the power of the monarchy. It was worried she might be either too weak or over-emotional, or she might become overly masculine and therefore cruel. Victoria had to find a way to carve out the role for herself and create the image to go with it. She had some examples to guide her, but Britain was very different from the days of Queen Elizabeth I or Queen Anne. And don't forget, it can't be just assumed that Victoria was in such a different position compared to some of the male monarchs who had preceded her. They too were judged on their behaviours. The Georges were despised precisely because they thought they could do whatever they want with drinking and womanising, and it brought the monarchy to the brink of destruction. Still, unlike William, she was born for the role, and many of her actions were innate or internalised during her upbringing, which was allied to her natural cleverness. No matter what the changes at the bottom rungs of the class system, iron law of the monarch at the top prevailed. The monarch had to set the tone for the rest of society, so Victoria's behaviour and relations to her inferiors mattered a lot. She had to demonstrate she was not like her grandfather. Yep, definitely not what Conroy had in mind, I expect. Still, on a strictly personal note, if you are like me and don't like Conroy, this is the bit where you can blow a raspberry at him. On the other hand, whatever his many faults, at least he and the Duchess had taken care to educate Victoria on a wider range of subjects than many upper-class girls might have gotten access to. Reading, mathematics, French, literature, music, art, and history, plus the immense range of practical skills like sewing and knitting, which would have been more typical for an upper-class girl. Technically, Victoria could have been left with almost no education and remained completely at the top of the class system, whilst a more educated but poor parish priest remained far below her. In practice, the British state couldn't afford a stupid or uneducated monarch. Everyone in the establishment wanted to know if Victoria was being educated properly. 
especially as the king was normally the one who arranged the education of the heir. The bishops were extremely pleased with the progress. They examined Victoria and stated, quote, The result of the examination has been such as, in our opinion, amply to justify the plan of instruction which has been adopted. In answering a great variety of questions proposed to her, the princess displayed an accurate knowledge of the most important features of scripture history and of the leading truths and precepts of the Christian religion as taught by the Church of England, as well as an acquaintance with the chronology and principal facts of English history remarkable in so young a person, to questions in geography, the use of the globes, arithmetic and Latin grammar, the answers which the princess returned were equally satisfactory. End quote. She did well in a fairly broad-based humanities education that included history, geography, plus a solid foundation in Latin, mathematics and the history of the Church of England and its operations. They didn't seem interested in her other skills, but Victoria was actually a good singer, dancer, musician, and artist. Once she got past the awful propaganda about her, or the popular image of her as a boring old lady in a black dress, you can start to see a person with a wide range of talents and interests, who loved to laugh, sing, draw and dance. Even as a child, she had a gift of comic timing and mimicry. Personally, I think you can see some of the overdramatic parts of her personality came out in strange ways, because as queen, she was so constrained. Remember, she was a person who wrote in italics and underlining in her private diaries. Victoria was not going to be able to explore her talents and seek various roles in life. Her role was already mapped out. She was going to be queen, and most people thought she would be queen sooner rather than later. We can see that she was allowed to be more strong-minded than most women of the period would have been during their education, and she was being educated six days a week unless her mother needed her to visit someone or receive guests. When you total it up, she was taught an immense range of subjects. But you might notice politics and the constitution were missing from the list. Also missing was any suggestion she should be subservient to men. That was not part of the plan. Conroy and the Duchess wanted a regency and them in control of Victoria. That would be jeopardised if she was flip-flopping between different advisers. Luckily, it is in 1830 that we start to get a great window into Victoria's mind. I suspect people were fed up with her tantrums, which could be epic. Lazen got her to keep good behaviour books, where Victoria had to write down her various outbursts, or times she had misbehaved. There's a wonderful entry in 1832, where Victoria describes herself as having been, quote, very, 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 very horribly naughty, end quote. If you have seen the BBC children's TV show Charlie and Lola, I sometimes think 
Queen Victoria wrote in Lola's voice. As a little kick in the teeth, though, the Duchess of Kent expected the naughty diary to be displayed to the public on demand so everyone could see Victoria's faults. Victoria's later letters to Uncle Leopold show that she was well read but also hint at the preparation for her life as Queen. After a series of revolutions on the continent, Belgium was left without a king. Dear Uncle Leopold was chosen as a replacement by the National Assembly. He was delighted, since he had already turned down an offer of being King of Greece, due to the political instability, and had missed being the Prince Consort in the United Kingdom by a whisker, so a full kingship dropping unexpectedly into his lap again was a dream come true. He packed and left, to Conroy's absolute delight. Now, there were even fewer people for Victoria to turn to. Leopold would always continue to advise her. He was actually a pretty successful king in many ways, upholding Belgium neutrality, dealing with an invasion, championing railways, and surviving the year of revolutions in 1848, and was mostly popular. If Victoria wanted a royal mentor, she could have hardly asked for anyone better. She wrote to him, quote, The Princess is Reading, Tunbridge Wells, 22nd of October, 1834. My dearest uncle, you cannot conceive how happy you have made me by your very kind letter, which, instead of tiring, delights me beyond everything. I must likewise say how very grateful I feel for the kind and excellent advice you gave me in it. For the autographs, I beg to return my best thanks. They are most valuable and interesting, and will be great additions to my collection. As I have not got to Sully's memoirs, I shall be delighted if you will be so good as to give them to me. Reading history is one of my greatest delights, and perhaps, dear uncle, you might like to know which books in that line I am reading now. In my lessons with the Dean of Chester, I am reading Russell's Modern Europe, which is very interesting, and Clarendon's History of the Rebellion. It is dryly written, but is full of instruction I like reading lots of different authors, of different opinions, by which means I learn not to lean to one particular side. Besides my lessons, I read Jones's account of the wars in Spain, Portugal and the south of France from the year 1808 till 1814. It is very well done, I think, and amuses me very much. In French, I am now in La Rivalité de la France et de l'Espagne par Galliard, which is very interesting. I have also begun rolling. I am very fond of making tables of the kings and queens as I go on, and I have lately furnished one of the English sovereigns and their consorts, as, of course, the history of my own country is one of my first duties. I would be fearful of tiring you with so long an account of myself. Were I not sure you take so great an interest in my welfare? 
please give my most affectionate love to dearest Aunt Louisa, and please say to the Queen of France and the two princesses how grateful I am for their kind remembrance of me. Believe me always, my dearest uncle, your very affectionate, very dutiful and most attached niece, Victoria. And I will hold my hands up here and say Victoria almost certainly knew how to pronounce the French in that letter properly, unlike me. So apologies for that, listeners. The affection for her uncle continued. The letter also demonstrates her love of reading, intellectual curiosity, but also her willingness to seek alternative historical sources to increase her understanding. It was a willingness to think out different viewpoints that shows she was developing critical thinking skills. That should probably have rung alarm bells for Conroy and the Duchess of Kent. Victoria wrote to Leopold again, saying, quote, St. Leonard's, 19th of November, 1834. My dearest uncle, it is impossible for me to express how happy you have made me by writing so soon again to me, and how pleased I am to see by your very kind letter you intend to write to me often. I am very much obliged to you, dear uncle, for the extract about Queen Anne, but must beg you, as you have sent me to show what a queen ought not to be, that you will send me what a queen ought to be. Might I ask, what is the very pretty seal with which the letter I got from you yesterday was closed? It is so peculiar that I am anxious to know. Believe me always, dear uncle, your affectionate, very dutiful and very attached niece. End quote. He replied, quote, The King of the Belgians to Princess Victoria. Laken, 2nd of December, 1834. My dearest love, you have written a very clever, sharp little letter the other day, which gave me great pleasure. Sure enough, when I show you what a queen ought not to be, I also ought to tell you what she should be, and this task I will very conscientiously take upon myself on the very first occasion which may offer itself for confidential communication. Now I must conclude to go to town. I must, however, say that I have given orders to send to you Sully's memoirs, as they have not been written exclusively for young ladies. It will be well to have Lazen read it to you, and to judge what ought to be left for some future time. And now, God bless you, ever my beloved child, your attached friend and uncle. End quote. Victoria was lucky to have an uncle who treated her with respect and was willing to support and encourage her developing mind and character. That was important. Given the barriers to education upper-class women faced in the early 1800s, as we talked about earlier, he was also unique in her life by being a family member who was an equal, a king who she could talk to outside the normal hierarchy of the United Kingdom, but who was friendly towards her. She became deft and politely ignoring his suggestions when they benefited Belgium too much, rather than the United Kingdom. Victoria was growing up to be a clever woman who was receiving a good education 
had at least some support to balance out Conroy and the Duchess of Kent, she had impressed the establishment with her education and her character. So she was actually in a fairly good place as an heir. She was beginning to work out her role in the class system as a future monarch. She had a royal mentor and the emotional support of Lazen. Her education was now nearly over. Next time will be a special second anniversary episode at the end of May. Probably another two-part show. The podcast has been on air for two years. I can hardly believe it. I have a very special topic planned. But I would love to have some listener questions to answer as well. So, if you do have any questions for me, please email by the 15th of May to give me a chance to put them together. Once we've done the anniversary special, we will cover politics in 1820 to 1830 and the battle for reform, then move to Victoria's accession to the throne. As for the future, well, as a recent review said, I keep my own counsel. Also, if you leave a review on iTunes and let me know it is for the anniversary, I will send you an email with an unpleasant Prince Regent style thank you. Just leave the review on iTunes, then email me and say, I'm ready for my thank you. Seriously, leaving a review on iTunes is free, takes less time than drinking a latte. Think of it as a thank you for two years of shows and a chance to shape the future of the podcast. There have been some really great reviews recently and I'll make sure I cover them all in a show soon but there have just been quite a few and this show has been a bit of a mammoth one even in two parts. But I do want to say a huge thank you to Rob and Nicola who have both made donations to the show. I really appreciate the support. The donations have been spent on obscure books on the Afghan wars, the northwestern frontier, travels in Bukhara in the 1830s, and many other interesting subjects. I hope you've enjoyed watching and learning about Victoria growing, and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback, or just have a chat, or ask any questions, you can email me at Podcast at gmail.com or on Facebook on the Facebook page or in the group just search for Age of Victoria if you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria take care and bye for now